Hi everyone, Dan Cassidy here. Welcome to Top of the Morning on the UBS Market Moves podcast channel. As we turn the page on Q3, we turn our focus to the close of 2021 and the remaining months that will make up Q4 with U.S. equities near all-time highs and an economy still navigating the impact of a global pandemic. Our conversation will walk you through what Q4 might have in store and how to position accordingly. Joining me for the conversation today, glad to welcome back to Top of the morning, Jason Dreho, Head of Asset Allocation Americas with the UBS Chief Investment Office. So, Jason, good morning. Welcome back. Hope you had a nice weekend, and thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Dan. It's great to be here. Absolutely. So, Jason, as a starting point, as we know, uh, the fourth quarter of 2021, it's just days away, and the Chief Investment Office is expecting growth to stay strong, as well as further upside in equities during this Q4 period. So, Jason, can you walk us through the factors that support this outlook and have recent volatility triggers? I'm thinking specifically to uh, what we've seen in China with the Evergrande Group. Has that at all disrupted expectations for the months ahead? So, if we look at events like you know uh, Evergrande and you know last week with the Fed the FOMC meeting, these are I would kind of view them as more temporary risk-off events or risk events that could disrupt the market and at minimum create volatility. And that's what we saw certainly for the first half of last week, uh, and those will continue. But if we look at more the underlying trend of the economic outlook, uh, that becomes more positive, and that's really like why we still believe there's more upside in equities certainly through year end. And some of that is just you know, predicated on the fact that you know, signs on the pandemic continue to be incrementally more positive. You know, that's not without bumps on the road to on the road to recovery. But the general direction has been towards continuous sort of normalization and getting the pandemic kind of under control. And if we just look at some of the data in terms of you know the number of daily cases in the U.S. and globally, you know, they peaked earlier this month, and there's there's a clear sign uh, of you know, moderating. Uh, your vaccination rates continue to you take higher, you know, slowly in the U.S., but even more so in, in the rest of the world. Uh, so if we look a few months from now, you know, another good percentage of the population globally will be vaccinated. Uh, and I think the ability of the individuals and you know, people to kind of deal with it is continuing to improve. So that allows for more normalization of activity. That's a factor because what we saw during the summer, particularly kind of in the July-August time frame, was a slowdown in some measures of economic activity. Uh, the Delta variant rose and was spread more prominently. But as those cases decline, we can see now people, you know, kind of, you know, re-engage. And the simple thing is just looking at the number of people who are willing to do flights, eat at restaurants, go to movies. It was rising, you know, early summer, slowed down clearly in August, up in the past couple of you know, weeks. And so we're likely to see a bit of, at least the acceleration of growth as we move into year-end. Um, that's in true U.S. in the U.S., but also kind of globally. So if that's the general trend, then that means the underlying sort of fundamental story is still you know, favorable for, for equities, for other risk assets. Um, and as we kind of get past some of these tail risks, you know, such as kind of FOMC clarity on what they plan to do with tapering, kind of you know, further you know, reducing the risk of Evergrande, contagion risk, that all sets up for a you know, relatively favorable backdrop for continuation for equities and the reflation aspect of equities, cyclical stocks, value stocks to, to do well. Now, despite the largely optimistic outlook you just shared with us, Jason, of course, there are no shortage of risk factors that could yield challenging periods for investors, similar to what we witnessed towards the early part of last week. Uh, What's top of mind for you, Jason, with respect to risk considerations? Well, things look better on Evergrande compared to this time last week when the markets were looking to sell off quite significantly. 
I think the concern that this would be a broader systemic issue that would be brain stress to the global financial system. I think we now know or have a higher conviction that that's less likely. Uh, but that doesn't mean the situation is completely behind us. Uh, there could be stress in other property developers within China. And really the bigger concern, I think, for now is not so much a financial type of crisis uh, or a big default, but it's leading to a slower economic uh, outlook for China. Um, could this weigh on the property market, which is a big part of the Chinese economy. It's upwards of, you know, it's kind of 30% of, of economic activity. So if you see a slowdown there, it has big implications for the Chinese economy overall. We see some small measures thus far for policymakers there to kind of combat the slowdown. But if they don't step up, the risk is that we could see China's growth you know, slow more moderately uh, than we're anticipating. In an environment where we're assuming growth will reaccelerate, you know, China being one of the biggest drivers of the global economy, if that doesn't materialize, then you know that sort of you know, that's a risk in the near term. Uh, turning to the U.S. and more immediately, a lot of focus will be on Washington D.C. this week, with the debt ceiling, uh, you know, negotiations taking place. Uh, something has to happen by the uh, by Thursday at midnight because that's the end of the fiscal year. So there's a possibility of passing a temporary, basically funding of the government for a couple of months. Uh, and with that, they could suspend the debt ceiling at least for, for two to three months. Uh, that's unlikely to happen. So it kind of puts more pressure on the Democrats to sort of figure out how they want to proceed. So a lot of headline noise there. In addition, there's discussions about, you know, a bipartisan infrastructure package and what it's going to be voted on by the House this week. Uh, that's tied to the state and, and the status of the budget reconciliation deal, which is the, the bill, the much bigger bill that the Democrats want to pass. But it's not necessarily agreement. So a lot of this near-term risk there, very small possibility of a real you know, kind of default or something significant happening. But at, at a minimum, it's going to create a lot of headline noise. So I think near-term, some of these event risks still are there. If you pull back a little bit and think more over the next six months, I think the big issue that's really kind of will matter for the markets is is inflation, uh, which has been elevated. And certainly there's concern that will continue to be elevated and not be transitory as the Fed has been talking about and some investors and the bond market market still pricing for. So as we get more data in the coming couple of weeks and couple of months in terms of the inflation levels, are they moderating? What impact is it having for corporate earnings? And we'll get a better clarity of that when companies start reporting third quarter earnings around the second week of October. So that will be the biggest driver because it's going to impact what the, the path forward is for the Fed in terms of how aggressive they have to be. It's going to impact where, where rates rise and, and by how much they rise and, and why they're rising. Uh, and that will have knock-on effects for equity markets. So I'd say the fundamental story is really about inflation. That's the key kind of thing to watch in the coming months. Jason, maybe we can pivot over to allocation a bit. So as has been mentioned a couple of times throughout the conversation, the chief investment office throughout Q4 is anticipating a further upside in equities. Uh, Given the macro environment that you've described for us, Jason, getting a bit granular here, which specific equity sectors stand to benefit the most during this Q4 period? And which, from your vantage point, have limited upside potential? So in terms of the, the biggest beneficiaries of the environment, uh, it is these kind of cyclical value sectors that stand to benefit most from certainly from higher interest rates and a bit of reacceleration in global growth and inflation staying elevated. And that means energy uh, and financials. And if we just look at last week, uh, especially in the second half of the week, when the S&P bounced back around you know 2.3%, you know from kind of Wednesday onward, you know financials and energy were the big leaders. And energy is certainly tied to also the, you know, the rise in oil prices and that's tied to kind of the outlook for global growth. So if our view for the next three to six months of 
you know, global growth, U.S. growth continues to actually reaccelerate at least modestly. Uh, interest rates that have been sort of contained continue to move higher, which has been our view. And now, if we look this morning, we see the 10-year Treasury around 1.40%, which is considering that it was around 1.3% uh, just a week ago. That's a pretty sizable move. That continues to move higher to your end. All sequel that tends to benefit, uh, you know, financials because it benefits from higher interest rates and also a steeper yield curve. And then by, you know, kind of the inverse is that higher interest rates tend to be a headwind for high growth stocks where a lot of earnings are, are, are far out in the future. So when you raise your interest rates, your opportunity cost for these value growth stocks, they tend to, you know, either underperform the market or they could pull back entirely, which is what we saw in the February, March timeframe when the 10 year yield ultimately rose up to 1.77%, around 45 basis points in four weeks. Uh, we saw value outperform growth stocks by around eight percentage points in that time period. We may not get the same magnitude of move, but we think something similar will happen over the next you know, few months. So fairbeam energy value in the U.S. Are, are two sectors that we like. In terms of, you know, what would have limited benefits, you know, it's not just growth stocks, but in some way the more defensive sectors uh, that are both you know, predicated on growth slowing, but also would you know be hurt by interest rates, include you know, utilities and consumer staples. And the sort of effects that we like that's more of a bit of a hedging uh, is healthcare, which has some defensive properties. It also has some growth properties. Uh, it tends to be a little bit less, uh, you know, sensitive you know, by its nature to the economic cycle. Uh, and so it's uh, it's something that kind of gives us a little bit of everything. There's also elements to value to it. So uh, given still there's uncertainty in the macro environment, that's another sector we don't like. It's, it's that it kind of it's a check multiple boxes uh, you know, sector at this point in time. Outside of equities, Jason, we always like to reinforce here on top of the morning how having a diversified portfolio is important, especially when faced with turbulent market conditions or a prolonged downturn. In the Chief Investment Office's Q4 Outlook publication, it's mentioned that investors should consider alternative means of yield generation. So as we close out, Jason, can you expand a bit on what this opportunity set consists of? Well, first, I think putting this in context of, you know, the challenge of trying to generate income right now, with the yield still very low, and even with the 10-year treasury yield up 18 basis points, it's still, by historical standards, exceptionally low. But in addition, if you start to look into, you know, more traditional fixed income asset classes like corporate credit, you know, their spreads are quite tight, um, and their yields are still near historical lows. Uh, so if you're thinking about, well, I want to get additional income, you know, the natural thing that people might do is when treasury yields are low, is you kind of go out on the, the you know, the yield curve or the risk curve to try and get additional income, whether it's first investment-grade corporate credit or now, you know, high yield. The challenge, you know, with that is the yields are incredibly low. Uh, it could also be the case that if you do it, you may not be fully aware of the risks that you're taking or you don't want to just be concentrated entirely on taking, you know, bets on U.S. corporate credit, riskier corporate credit to generate income. And you want to look for other asset classes that can give you that, you know, attractive yield, maybe even better, but also in a way that's, you know, a little bit more diversified. And so that's the idea behind sort of seeking, you know, diversity and alternative asset classes are, are you know, a way to do that. So within, you know, the realm of sort of alternatives, some that we like, but it's not really that much of an alternative is senior loan. That's one of our more preferred, you know, fixed income asset classes. It's a floating rate instrument so that it, as interest rates rise, it's not adversely affected directly by higher interest rates. But then you can also look at things like, uh, you know, in private credit markets uh, where, you know, spreads still continue to be relatively high. Historically, because they're private, they're less liquid than, you know, bonds that are trading in the public market. And therefore, you get a bit of a premium for this illiquidity. So, again, that gives you a little more, uh, you, know, sort of, you know, return. 
You can also look at, in some cases, of you know, you're trying to take advantage of volatility when it rises, as it did last week. Um, there's strategies where people are writing covered calls on existing stock positions. So if the upside for equities is you know positive, but maybe you know, a little bit limited at this point, if you kind of give away some of that upside, you can get that call premium and take advantage of higher volatility. There was a brief window last week where that happened. Now volatility has declined back a little bit, but I think it's something to watch for as we see potentially over the next month spikes in volatility as a result of various kind of you know, risk events. So it's another way to potentially generate some income. And then just maybe more active, you know, kind of fixed income strategies where people are willing to go into public asset classes, whether it's MLPs, preferreds, uh, you know, convertible bonds, things that, you know, require, I think, more diligence in your assessment, but they also then provide a little bit more, you know, income on the upside. Again, it's, you know, thinking about this in sort of a prudent allocation, making sure it's diversified. But I think that's what investors have to do. They have to kind of go a little more creative. Um, doesn't necessarily mean taking more risk, but I think you have to be prudent in how you take that risk and make sure it's not too concentrated in one particular area. So looking at a variety of strategies that have different factors driving it is the best way to ensure that, you know, you're more diversified. So if something happens, perhaps, to, you know, to one asset class, he doesn't spill over to other asset classes. Jason, thank you for dropping by the podcast to kick off the week by sharing CIO's Q4 outlook, the risk considerations to be mindful of, considerations when it comes to allocation, including thinking outside of the box. So looking forward to seeing market conditions evolve over the next three months and having follow-up conversations along the way. Uh, Jason, have a great week. Thank you again for your insights today. You're welcome. Have a great week, too. Thank you, Jason. And again, today we've been joined by Jason Dreho, Head of Asset Allocation Americas with the UBS Chief Investment Office. So as a reminder to our clients and our listeners, the UBS Chief Investment Office does author a variety of publications and blogs that touch on timely market developments, asset classes, and portfolio allocation. These resources can all be located on UBS.com forward slash CIO, including the publication which ties right into the conversation Jason and I just had, a UBS Chief Investment Office's Q4 Outlook publication. So for clients of UBS, you can contact your financial advisor if you would like to learn more or receive a copy of the publication directly. Top of the Morning is part of the UBS Market Moves podcast channel, which is available where podcasts are found including on iTunes, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, and Pandora. Visit UBS.com forward slash studios to view the entire podcast offering, as well as the new UBS trending video series. From UBS Studios, I'm Dan Cassidy. Thank you for joining us. UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the Global Wealth Management Business of UBS AG or its affiliate, UBS. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient and is published for informational purposes only. As a firm providing wealth management services to clients globally, UBS AG and its subsidiaries offer both investment advisory services and brokerage services. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, differ in material ways and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. In the USA, UBS Financial Services, Inc. is a subsidiary of UBS AG and a member of FINRA SIPC. For information, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash working with us. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash CIO disclaimer. 